I was in sixth grade, and I, as best as I can remember, this was one of my first, uh, like, middle school retreats with my church. And we, I lived in Asheville at the time, and we were going to go to Knoxville, which was about two hours away. And we were doing a variety of things there. They had a mall that we were going to. I don't remember a lot of the things that we did. But what I do remember was, towards the end of the time that we were at the mall, I was, I think I was in the food court or something like that, and I had like wandered off very briefly, and then I, I looked around and there was no one around that I knew. And there was that sinking moment of like, I'm by myself, there's no one here, I'm like 10 or 11 years old, I think. And so I, I was familiar with the mall because I had family that lived in Knoxville and so we'd been there before. So I start like wandering around the mall where I think that I would find people. So I like, go almost all the way outside back to where the van was. And I was like, okay, I don't see anybody. So I go back inside and there was a good, probably like four to five minutes where I was lost. This was pretty much, I think, the only time I've ever been lost. And granted, like, I've been lost in the woods or something like that. But being lost as a child is something that is very scary. You feel alone. So finally, I start walking out, going back out to the van. I'm like, okay, I'll just go back out of the van. I think we are leaving soon. We'll go back out there. And so if I get into the parking lot and I see our group that's just you know, a few hundred feet in front of us. So I rejoined the group and I feel a little bit better. But I remember for the next couple days, I was still like a little shaken by this. I had never been lost before. My parents are on this call. I don't even know if they remember this or had any recollection of this happening. Um, and as it happened, I don't think anyone in the group knew that I was missing either. <laughs> I like rejoined them and it was such a relief for me. And they're like, oh, hey, Joe, how's it going? And that feeling of being alone is, is terrible. And I suspect whether it's been a moment where you are alone, like physically alone, you're lost, or a moment where you feel lonely in a room full of people. All of us have these times where we feel some version of alone or being lonely. When we talk about moving in towards one another, I believe that this is the antidote for some of this. This series that we're going through, as you can see through this here, is in what we say every week, we believe that we move up towards God, in towards ourselves and each other, and out towards our neighborhood. And so this week, we're gonna dig in a little bit deeper about what does it look like to move in towards one another. It was in 1831, Alexis de Tocqueville, he was a French diplomat who had come to America. And he had, he's written extensively about individualism. And he said one of the greatest threats to America, and specifically American democracy, was individualism. And now 1831, that's several, couple hundred years ago almost, we're now seeing what this extreme individualism has brought us. There's some things that are beautiful that have come about of this. There's some things and some independence that has come about that are needed and beautiful things. But it's also caused us to overvalue our freedom, I would say. We have a great desire for freedom, and often when we have this limitless freedom and limitless choice, it saps other parts of our lives dry. There's tons and tons of studies about loneliness. There's been a recent study that shows millennials um, and Generation Z are among the loneliest within uh, all people right now. One study reported that 54% of people felt lonely and 35% feeling chronically lonely. 
And this isn't a problem that's just limited to us here as Americans. Britain recently appointed a loneliness minister, which is exactly what it sounds like. Someone within their government who's working to fight this pandemic of loneliness that's happening at such high rates for people. And it's staggering. Loneliness has the same effect on us as it does to smoke 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness that we think is sometimes hard to define. We, we know it when we feel it, we know it when we experience, but something that has a very real physical effect on us, as if we were smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And one of the tricky things of loneliness is that you can feel lonely when you're in a, a group of people, or you can be by yourself and not feel lonely. That's how I often feel when I'm out running in the mountains by myself. Most of the time, I don't feel lonely. But the thing about loneliness is we all experience it on some level. Whether it's a moment, whether it's a season, whatever it might be, we all experiencing, experiencing it. The antidote to loneliness isn't simply just being around people. That isn't what fixes, fixes it. In Time Magazine, there's an article now that's called COVID-19 is making America's loneliness pandemic even worse. Give me a second while I try to pull up this graph here. So this is what's happening in, in COVID. This is what we are experiencing. This graph is showing here that we have Generation Z, as I said, 79% of people within Generation Z and 71% of people within millennials are experiencing loneliness on some level. And this was in 2019, so this is actually before COVID even started. So these are the levels of loneliness that people are experiencing already. And then as COVID's come around, this is what's happened since then. So now it's a little hard to tell and the colors don't come through great, but what we're seeing is always, often, sometimes or never, so again, for Generation Z and the Millennials, we're seeing that this is increasing within loneliness, and it's even happening with Gen Xers and Boomers. Loneliness knows no age and no, no bounds. And this is something that is happening even, has gotten even worse since COVID's happened. And as we kind of stand on the precipice of this next quarantine and what's going to happen in wintertime, I, I suspect that those numbers are going to go up even more, which is why I believe it's super important for us to find ways that we can move in towards one another. So typically, how do we try to fix this problem? I usually see two approaches. This isn't an extensive list. I only have about 20 minutes, so we're not going to get into everything. But these are my two observations. The first way that I believe that we try to fix this loneliness is through distraction, avoidance, and numbing. I know that's three things that is one thing, but that's one thing. Distraction, avoidance, and numbing. And the second way that we try to fix this is through artificial connection. This is what we see through social media, Instagram, and Facebook, even things like Nextdoor or LinkedIn. There's so many different platforms that are trying to get people to connect with one another. But if you're like me at all, these things often don't help. In fact, they can easily make things worse. The first way that we try to fix this loneliness is through this distraction and avoidance. We might drown out or suppress these feelings. We might try to numb these feelings. And this can happen through a variety of different ways. This is often where addiction comes in. And addiction can be a huge spectrum. 
It can be substance abuse. It can be alcohol abuse. It can be pornography or overeating. But it can also be things that are less frowned upon, like over-exercising. And addiction goes up as loneliness goes up. And these are not, again, extensive lists, but these are some things that people often try to do, myself included, to make us not feel this sense of loneliness. We distract ourselves, we avoid, and we numb with whatever our choice might be. And I'm certainly not an expert on any of these things, but these are all things that I believe that people often push towards in order to not feel that sense of loneliness. The second thing that we see is this artificial connection. We see this in, in a couple different ways. For younger generations, millennials and Gen Z, we see this specifically through things like Instagram or TikTok. That's what the kids say, at least. I don't know about TikTok, Snapchat. Um, but then for older, and older generations, we actually see this in a little bit different way through things like television. So first for millennials, for millennials, one in four millennials spend five hours a day on their phone, which is a lot of time on their phone. And that's one in four millennials, but half of millennials spend three hours a day on their phone. So half of millennials are spending about three hours a day on their phone. And one thing within this conversation about social media and television and things like that, it's important to be able to take an inventory of how much time you're actually spending on these devices. So within the phone, especially iPhone, there's a, a convenient way to track this. It'll send you the weekly report every week where you might think, I did pretty good this week. And then it's like, you are on your phone for five hours every day. And it's a tangible way to see, okay, here's, here's where I'm at. This is the inventory of how much time I'm spending on these things. And then these are the things that I can start to put into place of how we can curb these things. And to be clear, this, this phone is not, this is not something that has accidentally happened through Facebook and Google and Instagram and things like that. This has been something that has been designed and intentionally manipulated in a lot of ways. If you haven't seen the Netflix movie Social Dilemma, it'll properly freak you out about all of these things so you can watch those. And after that, you will promptly want to burn your phone and computer and television. And it's a clear way of what it is like for us because we've become so tethered to these devices. But it's not just us. There's this graph here is an interesting graph about what it looks like for TV consumption. So TV consumption, as you can see, on this left side here, this is millennials and Gen Z. Only about two hours a day. I say only as if that's not that much. Only about two hours a day. And then you go all the way to the right here, and you have over seven hours a day, and that's with um, boomers and Xers. What is interesting about this and it all comes down to about four and a half hours of day, a day of television. That's a lot of time on the screen. But what's interesting about this is we're consuming at a pretty similar rate across all generations. Where my generation, our TV consumption is down, like cable news or something like that, we're consuming it in other ways, like Netflix or Instagram or social media. Whereas older generations are less likely to spend their time on the TikToks, as the kids say, they are gonna be watching television. So somewhere around this, we are at best spending about four hours a day on screens, four to six hours. And this is even before uh, the quarantine, before people are working at home, 
Many of us are working on screens. Many of people are staring at a screen right now. And this is before anything like that. I don't know what those numbers are, but I suspect that those numbers are high as well. So between four to six hours a day, if you do that seven days a week, you're looking at somewhere between 20 to 30 hours, depending on how much you're doing it. And 20 to 30 hours is a lot of time. To give you an idea, in the weeks where my training is the most intense training, I'm not even running for 30 hours. So for all of us, we could stop watching TV and we could all become ultra runners and it'll be amazing for all of us. But 20 to 30 hours is a lot of time. And so I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about how this is forming you. How is two to four to six hours a day of television, of screens, of social media, how is that forming you? What I've noticed in myself is that I have an attachment to my phone. I have attachment to TVs. TVs are easily going to distract me. I really love sports, and there was a time where there were not many sports on because of quarantine and COVID. And then over the last two months, it's been like jam-packed sports because they're all happening at the same time. Kate loves it. It's one of her favorite things. And I can easily get sucked in on sports. I love sports. And what I've noticed for me is that there's oftentimes when I can be attached to my phone or to the TV, and Kate will have to ask me to put my phone down so that I can focus on her and have a conversation. And have a conversation, specifically a conversation that's uninterrupted. Oftentimes it's easy to glance over and to pick it up, but to have a focused and uninterrupted conversation. Now, some of you, you may have all of this figured out. I don't, but you might have all of this figured out. But this, I believe, is one of the reasons that many of us struggle with loneliness. It's because we're looking for connections in so many different ways and so many different places, and we're missing the connections that we have in our very own life. We're looking for those connections or distractions that are often artificial and can even lead to neglecting the people that are around us. It was around 2015, a guy named uh, Johan Hari began talking about how we treat and approach addiction. And oftentimes when we think about addiction, whether it's alcoholism, substance abuse, pornography, whatever it might be, we often think about it in regards of sobriety, of sobriety is the goal. The opposite of addiction is sobriety. But what he found through his research and eventually coined a phrase that has captured people's attention is he said this, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is human connection. And I think deep down, most people know that they are wired for human connection. This is why we look for it in so many different places and so many different forms. For Christians, we know that this is where the story of humanity starts. God creates Adam, and then what does he say about Adam after he has created him? He says, it is not good for man to be alone, which is an interesting thing to say at that time, because as best we know, that was before sin. And Adam had an uncorrupted relationship with God, yet God still saw fit to bring Adam someone else. And within that, we are also made in the image of God. The very God that we are made in is relational. It's three gods in one that work in perfect relationship and communion and harmony with one another. So humans are built this way. So to know that we are built this way, what does it look like to live in community with one another? 
This is a pretty extensive list, but the Bible talks about this a lot. Here's a few things that it has to say. Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor, love and harmony with one another. Romans 15, admonish one another. Romans 16, greet one another with a holy kiss, which we'll bring back after the coronavirus is over. 1 Corinthians 11, wait for one another. 1 Corinthians 12, have the same care for one another. Galatians 5, be servants for one another. Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens. 1 Thessalonians 5, comfort one another, build one another up. Ephesians 6, put up with one another in love, be compassionate. Colossians 3, forgive one another. James 5, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, be hospitable to one another, meet with one another. And lastly, one of my favorites is Jesus in John 13. And he says that you, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And that verse really gets me because if that is how people are to know that we are followers of Jesus, we have a lot of work to do. It's one thing for us to be able to acknowledge this is what we are to do, but it's a lot harder for us to, to start this journey. So where do we start and what does it look like? If you've been around the sacred grace at all, you've heard us talk about limitation on some level. Typically, limitation is frowned upon, especially right now. We want to have freedom and limitless freedom. But we, within that freedom, are losing something that I believe is really important. And around here, our belief is that limitation actually creates space for meaning and belonging. And limitation actually further spurns creativity. Think about any artist. It's not until they choose a medium that they're able to create. It's not until they choose paint or a camera or pastels or whatever other things artists use. It's not until they choose that medium that they're able to create within that limitation and that expression. So one of the first things that I believe is, is to choose a limitation, which honestly, humans have a lot of limitations, but we don't like to put them on ourselves. Some obvious limitations are we can't fly, even though that would be awesome. We can't breathe underwater, even though that would also be awesome. We can't be in two places at once. And some of these are less subtle. And one thing that we have a struggle to acknowledge and limit ourselves is there are a limited number of people that we can truly have a connection with. We simply aren't designed for endless connection with endless people. Robin Dunbar is a psychologist and one of his studies that he has done is looking at what is the maximum number of people that we can actually have a relationship with. So this is a, a cognitive limit of people. It's not like I can know their name, but there's more involved than just I know their name and maybe like where they work. And so the number that he came up with is 150. This is the maximum number of people that someone can have an ongoing relationship with. This is beyond a simple relationship of like, I know this person's name, or I know maybe how many kids they have. But this is something that moves beyond that. And it's 150, which seems like a pretty small number. I'm sure many of you have thousands of Facebook friends and Instagram followers and TikTokers that follow you as well. But 150. And this is something that I believe is important for us as we begin in this journey of moving in towards one another is a limitation of saying, yes, we have friends all over the world, oftentimes all over the country and all over the city, but choosing a community to be a part of. 
what I believe is really fascinating is this is not just how we as humans have been created, but this is how the world has been created. Suzanne Simhard, she is a forestry professor at the University of British Columbia. I stumbled upon her in a book that I read. I'm not just like Googling forestry professors. So Suzanne Simhard, she had this hypothesis that trees are connected to one another and that we might not understand that, but somehow that trees are connected to one another. So she decided to go into a forest and inject a foreign gas into one tree and to see if this gas was then transmitted to other trees around it. And so as she, did the, as she did this, she found that the gas that she injected into the tree had traveled to 47 trees away from where she had injected it. And this is how connected these trees and these systems are. Now, within this same forest, she's in the British Columbia area, so it's densely forested area, and they have tons of mushrooms. So she's doing uh, research on mushrooms as well. So mushrooms, or fungi, they can't photosynthesize, which means they can't take light and transfer it into energy. So fungi need sugar in order to live and to be alive. Trees produce an enormous, trees produce enough minerals on their own within their bark that they can now share this with others. So these trees make the minerals that the fungi need in order for them to grow bark, while the tree takes the energy from the sun and transform it in, transforms it into the energy that the fungus need. However, fungi have the, the minerals that populate the soil around the bark that then in turn help the trees grow. To summarize, because I'm not a very good botanist, fungi need sugar to grow, but can't produce it themselves. So they get sugar from trees. Trees need minerals to produce bark, but can't produce it themselves. So they get minerals they need from fungi. Their growth and vitality is contingent on something that they can't produce on their own. For us, what if our growth and our vitality was contingent on someone else? Is it possible for us to grow and to follow the way of Jesus if we do this by ourselves or in isolation? Can we become faithful and fruitful all on our own? To close with Jesus, which is typically a good place to close, is how did he do this? We have that number of 150, but Jesus boiled this down even to 12 disciples. And before we think that this is an idealistic group of people, it was far from a neat and tidy group of guys. First, you have Simon the Zealot, and Zealots were known for their utter hatred for the empire and for Rome. And they would murder Roman officials and Roman soldiers in the streets. They wanted to overthrow the government. They used these guerrilla-type war, ta warfare tactics to do this. So that's one side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, you have a tax collector named Matthew or Levi, who works for Rome. And now these guys coexist in the same group together. And not only is Levi a tax collector, but often what taxes are levied upon are lower working class, like fishermen, who's like half of the disciples that Jesus had. And this is the same group of a zealot on one side and a Roman official on the other side. And they now coexist together in this group of following the way of Jesus. Said in 2020 terms, could you imagine a group having someone from Antifa and a white supremacy group working together in the same group? This is how volatile and hostile this group of people could have been. Yet, Jesus chose these 12 people to commit his life to. 
There was reciprocity here. It wasn't just they were following Jesus, but Jesus has committed his life to them. And within this 12, he breaks this down even further to three people. Because again, Jesus has now committed his life to these three people and these closest friends. And to think about it with Jesus, this was three years, which seems like a a somewhat small amount of time. But if he's spending every day with these people, that is an incredible amount of time. So if you were to spend three years with everyone, if you were to spend every day a week, every day with someone for three years, that would be 1,095 days, which is a lot of days. That's every day for three years. But now, if you were to break that down and say you saw somebody once a week, which by all accounts is a lot to see somebody, it would take you 21 years to spend 1,095 days with these people. Community takes a long time to build, and it takes an incredible amount of effort and sometimes limitation to say that this is where I'm going to pour in. Community can be hard, and it can often involve people that we don't like or people that we disagree with. If that's any indication of the 12 disciples, then we should have the same expectation. So can you think of 12 people? Are those 12 people a part of our church? Are those 12 people live in your neighborhood? Within that, can you think of three people that are your closest and most dear friends? One of those three is right here next to me. One of the things that Kate and I have done throughout different times um, since we've known each other is we've intentionally tracked relationships and friends. And that might sound a little bit weird, um, but we all have a limited amount of time. And so we've taken inventory of like, these are the relationships that we have. These are relationships of the people that are physically close to us. That might be our neighbors. These are people who live across the city, that, but we feel a connection with. And one of the places that I believe is important to start is some kind of inventory of, okay, who are the people that are in my life, that are in my life perhaps for a reason, that are in my life because they're my physical neighbor? And what does it look like to be more committed to that relationship and more committed to that friendship? We intentionally limit ourselves, but because we want these relationships to be rich and to be filled with depth. And this is something that happens through being with one another. And this is something that happens as we follow the way of Jesus. Jonathan Wilson Hargrove says, stability in Christ is always stability in community. We must have those things working together. And so as a church, we say every week that we move in towards ourselves and in towards one another. And especially over the next few months, my hope is that we continue to move in towards one another, even when it becomes hard and messy and complicated as the coronavirus continues to expand and spread and constrict the way that we live to put limitations on us that many of us don't like. What does it look like to be intentional with the people who are already in your life, the people that are coming into your life, and how can we move in towards one another?